Do you remember being a kid playing on a playground somewhere, maybe kickball, and something happens, ball goes out of bounds, people can't agree on the rules, who gets the point, who gets to do what, who's in the right, who's in the wrong, and then somebody makes a call. It's a call that you'll never see in professional sports, at least I don't think so. But man, it works on the playground. What's the call? A do-over. Just, just forget it. It's just do-over. Didn't happen. We're just going to move on. Keeps the peace. Let's just do it over. It's as if the play never happened. It's erased and there's a new beginning to that play. I think we want do-overs in life, don't we? Wouldn't it be great in a moment to just, you know, you say something to somebody and they're like, wait a minute. I'm just going to call a do-over here. That didn't come out right. Man, I'd love that in sermons sometimes. Can we just go back and fix that? that? That's not what I meant to say. Or those offhanded comments, and it's like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Can I just get a, a do-over here? Or you go through a time that you've hurt someone, or maybe you've been hurt, and it's like, whoa, can we just back up? Can we just get a do-over here? But is it really fair to have a do-over? Should people get a do-over? What if they've hurt somebody? Should that person be able to just get a do-over and act like it's no big deal? Meanwhile, that person's still hurt? What about the ongoing learning that we have from opportunities in our life, even difficult opportunities? Should we get a do-over and then fail to learn from those things? What would a do-over actually look like? We are in Numbers chapter 26 and 27 today. And you know, the Old Testament sometimes is hard. Sometimes it's hard because it's hard to accept what God is saying through his word. That, that happens often as we come to scripture. But especially in the Old Testament, we're entering into this very ancient text. This happened thousands of years ago. It's a very ancient, very foreign culture to us. And then other times, the passage is about things that we kind of shake our heads at and go, I don't really understand what this is. But there are threads that we can pick up. And that's what I'm hoping to show us today through these two chapters. There are threads that we can pick up of how God works. Threads that we can see about his grace and his mercy. There's also also threads that we can pick up about how people respond to God. And we can see ourselves in those things and say, ooh, I can learn from their bad example. I can learn from their good example. I can maybe identify with their bad example. And we can learn from those things. Some of these threads that get picked up, and I hope you've seen them so far in the book of Numbers, God is absolutely holy. He is perfect and righteous. There is no sin. There is no wrongness in him. And God has a good plan for his people. God is not just dealing with things as they come up. He's not just trying to figure out things as he goes. He has a plan from the beginning to end. The other thread that we see is God's people constantly rebel against God. Over and over, especially in the Old Testament, but even in the New, people should know better that have said, I trust in the Lord, that have gotten to know the Lord, and then they turn away from Him and they go their own way. And in response to that, we see God's holiness at work. 
We see righteousness and justice at work, but there's another thread that comes in, and it is the thread of grace. God, over and over again, shows grace to those who do not deserve it, and he gives new beginnings to people who are lost. So I want to look at these chapters and understand how this shows us a new beginning and why we need new beginnings. And we're going to do that by looking at chapter 26. Now, if you open up Numbers chapter 26, you're going to see, hopefully right away, and if not, the little subtitle will tell you, this is a census chapter. It's a recording of a numbering of people. They are counting the people of the Israelites as they go through the desert. This is where the book of Numbers gets its name. The first chapter of the book of Numbers is a census, accounting. Here we have another one. This is why it's called the book of Numbers, because there's a whole bunch of numbers. And this is one of those chapters that if you're going through kind of your annual Bible reading, or you just for some reason, you know, said, hey, Lord, lead me to a passage, and you open up to Numbers chapter 26, you're going to go, what am I supposed to get out of this? It's a bunch of names I can't pronounce going through a situation I don't really always understand, and a bunch of numbers that I'm not really sure what to do with. What does it really mean? Look with me at chapter 26, verse 1. Because right away, our attention is grabbed and focused. And look at where it's focused. After the plague. After the plague. That's where this whole chapter starts. And that is a way of bringing in what's been going on in the book of Numbers. To remind us, this census is going to be a big deal. And where it is in the book of Numbers is crucial. And what it means, because it's a major turning point in the book of Numbers. After the plague. Now, if you haven't been here or you weren't here last week, you might be like, what plague? What's it talking about? If you were here last week, last week was hard. It was a hard passage. It was a hard truth because it refers to chapter 25 when the Israelites fall into horrendous sin. We looked two weeks before that at the couple chapters leading up to it. It's this brilliant passage of God kind of having this cosmic spiritual battle. There's this foreign king and he's trying to curse the Israelites and God keeps fighting for them and turns the words of this false prophet around. So he keeps pronouncing a blessing. And it's so awesome that God is just fighting for his people and they don't even know. And then it's like the camera shifts. And in chapter 25, we look at what the Israelites are doing. And we see that what they're doing is giving in to sin after sin after sin after sin, running headlong, knowingly, flagrantly, rebellion, and just pure rebellion. They're running into sin. And we looked at that. It's a hard chapter because it makes us take a hard look at our own lives to caution ourselves and to challenge ourselves to say, how do we do the same thing? And at the end of that chapter, or in that chapter, God sends a plague of punishment upon his people. And I believe it's 24,000 people, verse 9 of chapter 25, 24,000 people perish in this plague. And so the chapter begins, verse 26, after the plague. But to really understand the context, we've got to go back further. I said that the book of Numbers started with a census, and it does. The first two chapters, maybe three or four, depending on how you want to break it up, deal with the first counting of the Israelites. 
And it's, it's not a random counting. They didn't just do this for no reason. They've left Egypt. God has saved his people out of Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea, brought them to Mount Sinai. There, they have made a covenant with God. God has said, I am your God. You will not worship any other gods. You will trust me. You will obey me. You will follow me. And they said, yes, Lord, yes. And then they're coming away from Mount Sinai from that commitment and they're going to go to the promised land. And before they leave, they count the people. Everybody, well, in this case, it was men, 20 years and older. And it's the counting of the generation that made that promise. And the the book of Numbers starts with this generation that has made this covenant promise with God and they're going to walk to the promised land and things fall apart along the way. In Numbers chapter 14, that generation that was counted in Numbers chapter 1 rebels against the Lord. Numbers 14 verses 1 through 4, that night all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. You see, God brings them to the border of the promised land. They send in spies. The spies come back. Yeah, it's great but we'll never survive. We'll never be able to take this land. God won't be able to do this, even though God had promised it. And the people don't just come to God and say, God, we're really struggling. They say, God, we reject you and we're going back to Egypt and we're going to kill the people that you have put over us. They go on in verse three. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Do you understand what they're saying? They are accusing God of being wrong, of not being strong enough. And I would go so far as to say they're basically saying God is evil, that he has a bad plan, and they're blaming God for it. Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They reject this number that was counted, chapter 1. The census that was taken of this generation that was old enough to make this commitment, they break their commitment to the Lord. They reject what he's done for them. They reject his goodness, his power, and instead they want to do their own thing. God says in Numbers 14, verses 28 to 32, so tell them as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. They say, look, this is what we want to happen. And the Lord basically says, okay, that's what's going to happen. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and it was grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. It's hard. That's really the core of what Numbers is all about. For 40 years, they wander in the wilderness. For 40 years, the whole generation that was counted in Numbers chapter 1 dies. And that process of that generation passing away ends In Numbers chapter 25, it is the last group, other than a few individuals that we'll look at, it is the last group to pass away. 
Chapter 26 is this turning point of God fulfilling his promise to this new generation. It is a new beginning for the people of Israel. That God will do what he has said he was going to do all along. And so the chapter begins with after the plague, and then what is Moses told to do? In verse 2, take a census. It's kind of a repetition of Numbers chapter 1 all over again. Let's again count the generation that's going to go into the promised land. Let's again make this covenant that we're going to walk in together and trust the Lord. Numbers chapter 26, if you skip all the way down to verse 64 to 65, it explains this new census and why it's different. Not one of them, not one of those that's being counted here in this chapter, was among those counted by Moses and Aaron, the priest, when they counted the Israelites in the desert of Sinai. For the Lord had told those Israelites they would surely die in the wilderness. And not one of them was left except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. God did exactly what he said he would do. And what we are told in the rest of the book of Numbers is about this new generation, this new beginning. God has never given up on his people, even though they gave up on him. He is still fulfilling his promises to them. And so that new beginning starts with a new census because that's how Numbers deals with this. So we need to understand the importance of this census. It is a counting of the new generation that will enter the promised land. Now that's great. I'm not going to go through and read the census. You can read it on your own. I actually did study. I I like to see how other preachers have dealt with a passage. And I did come across one pastor that read the whole thing. I'm not going to do that to you. I don't think I could pronounce them all to be very blunt. And frankly, I think we get lost in the details. But I want you to see the big picture. And a big part of this is that we need new beginnings. We need that starting over through God's grace. And that's exactly what gives us new beginnings. It is God's grace that gives us new beginnings. And we look at that and say, okay, I want to do over in my life. We often think about this, you know, December, end of December, starting a new year. What am I going to do different? What am I going to fix in my life? And we often think, well, I just have to work harder. I'm just going to be better. I'm just going to fix myself. I'm going to solve these problems. I'll turn over a new leaf. And over and over in scripture, we see God's people trying to do that. And over and over again, it doesn't work. But the pattern that arises through that is that it's God's grace and only God's grace that can give new beginnings. And we see glimpses of this in the census. Part of it, if you look toward the end, I didn't write down the verse number, I should have done that. Toward the end of the census, it gives the count of how many people there are. 51, thank you. Verse 51, the total number of men, of the men, this is 20 years and older, and this doesn't include the Levites, total number of men of Israel was 601,730. Does anybody off the top of their head remember the total number from the first census? Come on, you should know this. (laughs) Nope, it was 603,550. Just not including, just compare apples to apples here. Now, Now just listen, I know, like big numbers, right? Tune out, no big deal. The difference between these two numbers is 1,800 people. 
For 40 years, they have wandered in the wilderness. Day after day, pick up the tent, pack it up, walk along where God is leading them, settle down, maybe face a battle, maybe face a famine, face a lack of water. God miraculously delivers. People rebel. God wipes out a whole bunch of people. For 40 years, this has gone on and on and on. And the number of Israelites has only decreased 1,800 people. A whole new generation has been born in the wilderness along the way of these hardships. I can't even imagine what the Israelite women went through having to give birth in the wilderness and go through all of that, through all of the hardships that they went through. But I think it's a huge testimony to God's faithfulness and his graciousness to be sure that there is another generation ready to enter the promised land because God will fulfill his promise. In the middle of all their hardship and in spite of all their grumbling, God has been gracious to his people. There's other glimpses through. I'll just point out a couple briefly. Chapter 26, verse 11, there's a reference to the family of Korah. If you remember, uh, I think it was chapter 16, we looked at this big rebellion of Korah and his followers. And it talked about Korah's family getting wiped out. And yet here we're shown not all of them. And Korah's lineage goes on. It's just a testimony to God's grace. There's several other difficulties that are mentioned throughout the history of Israel. And yet with each one of them, that family goes on and God is gracious to them. The census of chapter 26, the whole thing together, is a testimony to God's grace. This generation born in the wilderness is not inherently better. They're not suddenly more holy, more pure, or even more obedient. God has chosen to work through them and to show his grace to them. In fact, there are also warnings throughout the census. You know, when you start over, you want to put the past behind you. You just don't want to think about it. Just kind of move on as if it didn't happen. But the census is full of reminders of things from Israel's past and things that their parents did. That it reminds them over and over again that you need to learn from this. Grace does not give us the green light to just do whatever we want. It's not a new beginning to just go and be whoever we want to be. It is a new beginning to trust God and follow him. To recognize that he is God and we are not. The census of chapter 26 shows us that God's plan, his gracious sovereign plan, continues. This new generation will be brought into the promised land through God's grace. And that land, this is a big part of the census too, that new land, that promised land will be divided up according to the count that they've made here. Each family that is numbered will get a certain amount of land that they can start over in. And they will receive all of this, everything that God has promised because of his grace. But there's also this amazing fact in chapter 27 of God's grace continuing. God has a plan for his ongoing grace. God doesn't just give us grace, start us over, and then say, good luck, have fun. He gives us grace and says, now you are my child. And I want you to know me and live in relationship with me. 
God's plan is for his grace to continue. And he puts things in place to maintain that grace. Chapter 26 has two scenes. The first scene is verses 1 through 11. The second scene is 12 through 23. The first scene has to do with Zelophehad's daughters. And I'm probably butchering that name. And it is weird. It's weird that it's in here. And what's even more weird is that Zelophehad's daughters are going to be the way that the book of Numbers ends. If you skip forward to chapter 36, the very last passage of the entirety of the book of Numbers is about this guy's daughters, of all things. We'll talk more about that when we get there. It just seems like this very random story to include here. Let me just give you the gist of it so you understand what's going on. There's a man that was part of the first generation. He had children, but only daughters, and he has passed away along with the first generation. And the daughters have a problem because the land is being numbered and divided up, or the people are being numbered so they can divide up the land. But the way their culture works is that the land will be divided among the sons. And these daughters are going, wait a minute. Our our father, our, our family deserves an inheritance, what's going to happen to us? Does God care about that? And I think it's kind of amazing. It's easy to read this. It almost seems like they're being a little whiny. In chapter 4, it says, Why should our our father's name disappear from his clan? Because he had no sons. Give us property among our father's relatives. I think we need to be very careful not to read our culture into this. Because when we do, they sound whiny. I think what's actually amazing is the faith that they're showing. This whole book of Numbers has been filled with people going, we'll never make it into the promised land. We're all going to die here. We should go back to Egypt. These women, these young women in the book of Numbers, they assume they're going into the promised land. Think about the faith that they have. We're going into the promised land. They also assume that God cares about their plight. What's God going to do? And it's interesting the way Moses handles this request. Verse 5, he says, so Moses brought their case before the Lord. It's like Moses goes, I don't know, let me talk to God and see what he says. And God adds to his own law. He clarifies and he says, yes, in a case like this, the daughters will inherit the land. We'll look more about that or more at that later in the book of Numbers when we come back to that in chapter 36. But I think for here, what we see, because it ties into verses 12 through 23, what we see is that God has a plan for his grace to continue into the future. And that's powerful. And he's going to care for these women by putting a law on the books to take care of them and anybody else in a similar situation. Let's look quickly at scene two here, verses 12 through 23. God is going to give the Israelites a new leader. I do want to read this part because I think it's good to read scripture as part of a sermon. We haven't been able to do that. So let's read this passage. Verse 12, then the Lord said to Moses, go up on or go up this mountain in the Abirim range and see the land I've given the Israelites. After you have seen it, you too will be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. For when the community rebelled at the waters in the desert of Zen, both you Both of you disobeyed my command to honor me as holy before their eyes. These were the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the desert of Zin. 
Moses said to the Lord, May the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so the Lord's people will not be without or be like sheep without a shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit of leadership, and lay your hand on him. Have him stand before Eleazar, the priest, and the entire assembly, and commission him in their presence. Give him some of your authority, so the whole Israelite community will obey him. He is to stand before Eleazar, the priest, who will obtain decisions for him by inquiring of the Urim before the Lord. At his command, the Uh, At his command, he and the entire community of Israelites will go out, and at his command, they will come in. Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua, had him stand before Eleazar the priest, and the whole assembly. Then he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord instructed through Moses. Now, Numbers doesn't actually record the death of Moses. That comes later. But here, Moses is told again, and this is not a surprise to him, He had sinned against the Lord. He had rebelled against the Lord. And and the consequence of that rebellion was God said, look, you will not go into the promised land. You who have led my people through all of this difficulty, you won't be allowed to go in. And it's interesting as I read this, I almost thought, man, God, isn't this kind of cruel? You're not going in, but I'll let you see it. Thanks, God. You get to see what you're missing. And then I look at how Moses responds. That's not the way Moses took it at all. Moses shows incredible humility here. And I want to look at what he says, but I want to understand the grace that's going on as well. Moses has led these people with the understanding of the fulfillment of a promise that there is a land that God's going to lead them to. And I think it's actually God's grace that he says, Moses, I want you to see it. This is what you've been leading them to. And this is what I'm going to give to my people. And yes, you don't get to go in, but I want you to see it and know that all of your leadership was not for nothing. What an amazing picture of grace when you see it from that perspective. And look at his response. Listen to the heart of Moses here. God is dealing with Moses and saying, you're not going to get to go in, but I'll allow you to see it. And look at where Moses goes. Verses 15 through 17, he says this. Moses said to the Lord, may the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. What is Moses' heart here? He wants the people to be taken care of. He's not standing there going, God, this isn't fair. This isn't right. Come on, I did all this. I want to be able to go in. He says, God, what I want is for your people to be cared for. Give them a shepherd. And so God gives his people a leader, the man Joshua. He's the one that will take them into the promised land. This is part of God's ongoing grace toward his people. Again, God doesn't just say, there's the promised land. Good luck. He says, look, I have a plan to take you in. And here's the leader that's going to do it. So what do we do with this? It's very foreign. It's very weird. It's a bunch of numbers, a bunch of unpronounceable names. But I think we can identify with new beginnings. 
we get to those places in our own lives that we say, I, I need a do-over. I need a new beginning. Maybe there's things in our past that we've done. Maybe there's things in our past that others have done to us. We say, how do I move on from this? And often, as I've said before, we, we, we say, I'm going to try harder. I'm just going to do better. And, and then we start to struggle and we start to fail. And all of the pressure is on us. And all of the guilt is on us. And the pattern goes on and on and on. And we say, I'm trapped. I can't get out of it. What do I do? And what I want you to know, number one, is that that pattern is all over Scripture. It's not just you. Not only is it not just you, but I believe that God in his sovereign wisdom threaded that idea throughout Scripture over and over again so that people like you and like me would look at it and say, God gets me. He sees what I struggle with. And also so that we can come to Scripture and see there is another way to have a new beginning. Only God's grace can break through that cycle. And give us a true new beginning. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says it this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. That's a new beginning. That's not just try harder. That's come to Jesus. And he can take you from that old life that you've been living in and struggling with and trying to do better in. And he brings you into the new life through Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection. And then I love Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. I went through this with my Sunday school class this morning. It starts with, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Man, we don't want to hear that. But that's what tells us we need a new beginning. We have to accept that if we're going to get into the new beginning that the gospel brings us. Verses 4 through 5, it moves on to, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Do you hear the echoes of the Old Testament? People who didn't deserve it, who rebelled against the Lord, but God in his richness of his mercy continued to work out his plan through his people. And here it's through Jesus Christ made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. We don't earn it. We don't fix ourselves. We don't turn over the new leaf. God gives us a new beginning through the grace in our lives. But his plan doesn't stop there. He has a plan to keep going in our lives. He doesn't just say, good luck, have fun. He says, and God raised us up with Christ. And seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God has a plan for each one of us. And it is a plan for us to know just how amazing God is, and how much he loves us, and how much grace he wants to show us, and what this new life is all about. And then we get to the new beginning. For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. We don't start over in our lives. We come to Jesus and he gives us a new beginning through his death, burial, and resurrection. And then, because we have a new beginning in Jesus Christ, then we understand we are God's handiwork 
created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Here's what we get wrong so often. We think the good works lead to the new beginning, and it's absolutely backwards. It's the new beginning that leads to the good works. You don't earn your new beginning. Jesus earned it for you through the cross, burial, and resurrection. It's grace. It's always been grace all throughout Scripture. So here's my question for all of you today. Are you looking for a new beginning? Are you at that point in your life and you're going, man, I'm just stuck. And I've tried, I've been spinning my wheels. I've tried this habit and that habit and that counsel and this counsel. Nothing seems to be working. I've changed this and tried that. None of it seems to work. Or maybe you're just stuck and you don't know what to do. The grace of God through Jesus Christ is powerful. And it reaches into the most desperate, most rebellious, most lost situations. And it does amazing things. Things that we can never do on our own. And maybe you're here and you're stuck and you've been spinning your wheels because you have never trusted Jesus as your Savior. Oh, maybe you prayed a prayer when you were little and checked a box and you say, I'm in. But, but trusting Jesus means my life is not my own anymore. I give it to him completely, wholeheartedly. I trust in him. He died for me. He raised to new life. And I see that that's my story. Because Jesus did it, it applies to me. If you're looking for a new beginning, turn to Jesus. And maybe you're here and you're like, I've, I've turned to Jesus, I'm trusting in him, but I'm, I'm still stuck. I think so often we get stuck because we don't see ourselves through the lens of that new beginning. We, we don't take what Jesus has done and use it to reinterpret everything about our lives. We take the gospel and our Christianity and our going to church on Sunday and we add it on to our already busy life and we just pack it up with everything else and we move on and we wonder, why didn't it make a difference? The Bible says that the grace of God redefines us, completely changes us. We are a new creation, not just a better version, a completely different version of ourselves made new through Jesus Christ. Friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, work hard to look at your life and say, I am not who I was. I have been raised to new life in Jesus Christ, and I'm going to live out that difference today. I'm going to treat that person differently because of how God has treated me. I'm going to speak differently and act differently because I want to demonstrate the new life of what God has given me through Jesus Christ. Live out that new beginning in your life. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. I think the book of Numbers and and all of Scripture, all of the Old Testament especially, but especially the book of Numbers, I think it just shows us what happens when people try to do things in their own way. Apart from you, often in rebellion against you. And God, if we're honest... That's true of us as well. There are times in our lives that we just want to do our own thing. We don't want to be bothered or shackled with this old school religious stuff. We just want to be free. 
And yet, Father, being free in sin is not freedom at all. And we need a new beginning. We need the new creation. We need the new life that can only come through Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone here that has never accepted that new life, never given their life to you and trusted in Jesus as their Savior, may today be the day. But Father, even for those of us that have, we struggle along the way. Partly because we take our eyes off of you and off your grace and we put them on ourselves. And we think we just need to do better and we start the cycle all over again. I pray instead, Father, we would go deeper into your grace. Deeper into understanding who you are and what you've done for us. Who we are in Jesus Christ. So that then every day we could live out that grace in our lives. Live as people who have been given a new beginning in Jesus Christ. God, I think if we would do that, that would be the greatest act of evangelism that this world has ever seen. That would be the greatest testimony to this world to see people living out the new life that you've given us differently because of who you are and what you've done for us. And I pray that when they ask why we live that way, we'd be ready with the answer to tell them about Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection that can save them too. Thank you, Father, for new beginnings through your grace in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.